I'm Todd, and the second Bible reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Well, thank you so much, Todd. It is time now for our sermon. And once again, David Jones is going to do that for us. So over to David now. Moses is the supreme figure of the Old Testament, uh, arguably one of the greatest leaders of all time. Uh, he lived to be 120. Uh, that sounds a little bit... Uh, <laughs> good for us these days, but, you know, we're getting up there, aren't we? Um, I know quite a few people who are in their hundreds, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if our children and grandchildren live to be 120 or 150, who knows? Anyway, Moses lived for 120 years, and D.L. Moody sums up his life like this. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking that he was somebody, 40 years in the desert, in the desert uh, learning that he was nobody, and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who finds out that he's a nobody. <laughs> so let's try and find out what God can do with a somebody who thinks, um, who finds out that he's a nobody. Hebrews, this little passage in Hebrews uh, highlights for us three punctuation points, if you like, in Moses' life. When he was born, verse 23. Uh, when he was grown up, verse 24. And when he faced down Pharaoh, verse 27. So let's have a look at those three punctuation points, if you like, in Moses' life. First of all, his birthday. That's a very significant day for everybody. Um, happy birthday to you, Edith, for yesterday. <laughs> uh, they won't know who you are in, in Surrey Hills, but never mind. <laughs> um, the circumstances of Moses' birth are quite remarkable, aren't they, when you think about it? Just look at verse 23. See, there's, there's a considerable con, um, concern about the drop in the birth rate here in Australia at the moment, and that means, you know, what that'll mean for us when we come out of uh, COVID for our economic uh, recovery. Uh, why aren't people having babies uh, in Australia anymore? I'm sure there are many reasons. Uh, I don't want to go off at a tangent. There are many reasons, I'm sure, for that. But surely one of the reasons must be fear. It's a scary time to be alive, isn't it? Why bring children into a world like ours? Um, a, a world that's in the midst of kind of global recession, uh, a world uh, with the threat of climate catastrophe and uh, in the midst of um, uh, a pandemic. It's a scary time. 
but nowhere as scary. You see, we always imagine we're guilty of chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, that we're, we're the only generation that's ever experienced things like that. But uh, if, if you think it's a scary time now, right now in Australia, it's nowhere near as scary as the world into which Moses was born, with uh, totalitarianism invading the family and post-birth abortions mandatory for Hebrew boys. It's not a good time to be born, is it? But you see what it says there in verse 23? By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' parents, Amran and Jochebed, we know their names from the book of Exodus, uh, they were God-fearers. They were not Pharaoh-fearers. And they brought up their boy, it says, by faith, not in fear. Someone has said, our children breathe in what we breathe out. And, and that's true, isn't it? They breathe in what we breathe out. And if we're, if we're anxious and, and fearful uh, and scared, our, our children will breathe that in. Uh, William Still has a little book. William Still was a minister in the Church of Scotland. And he has a little book on infant baptism, which uh, I love the title of the book. It's only a tiny little book. I can't lend it to you because I lent it to someone else and they've, they haven't given it back. <laughs> and if you're out there, perhaps you will <laughs> remember. But um, the title says it all. The title of that little book is Bringing Up Your Children in Faith, Not in Fear. See, if you're fearful about how your children are going to turn out, then that, that fear and that uncertainty communicates itself uh, to the child. Uh, but if you bring them up trusting in the, in the character of God and the promises of God and the covenant of God, then they'll breathe that in, won't they? Yeah, and that's the environment in which Moses was reared as a child. See what it says there? They saw that the child was beautiful. That's how the, the ESV translates it. Of course, every parent thinks their child is beautiful, don't they? It can be embarrassing sometimes. You know, a young mum brings her baby to church for the first time and everybody is cooing and admiring the little baby and he just looks like a stewed prune. <laughs> all, all wrinkled and squashed up. But you daren't say so. Because <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And every baby is beautiful to their parents and to their grandparents. But this is more than that. Uh, Stephen, you know, the, the, we often don't skip over that great speech of Stephen's in Acts chapter 7, but Stephen uh, says in, that, in, that, uh, in Acts chapter 7 uh, about, about, about this, that um, they saw, not just that they, not just that they saw that the child was beautiful, he says they saw that the child was beautiful in God's sight. Remember what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. See, that, that child, Moses, that child of yours uh, is beautiful. That grandchild of yours is beautiful because he or she is, has been made in the image and likeness of God. And God has set eternity in that child's heart. So your child, your grandchild, doesn't belong to the state to be thrown to the crocodiles. That, that precious bundle of life is to be protected at all costs. 
And then that's what they did, Amran and Jochebed, Moses' parents. It says, by faith, they, they hid him for three months. Now, slave dwellings in uh, Egypt were not soundproofed. And, and by the time Moses was three months, he was like any uh, baby, pretty noisy, I reckon, too noisy to hide at home. And so, you know the story. They, they, they committed their child to the wonderful providence of God. You know the story of Moses in the bulrushes. Such a well-known story, isn't it? And you know how, how, how it goes, how Pharaoh, uh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter sees that little child and she adopts the child. And, and Miriam, Moses' sister, arranges for his mum to nurse him. It is one of the great stories of the Bible. You can read about it in the early chapters of Exodus. And, and so, do you see what happens? In the providence of God... Moses, the future liberator of his people, is brought up in the faith of Israel at Pharaoh's expense. Isn't that great? <laughs> Isn't that ironic? I mean, Pharaoh, I mean, Egypt was a huge superpower. It was the world superpower. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. He's hell-bent on exterminating the Jews, exterminating the people of God. And in the providence of God, he ends up providing board and lodge for the very man who's going to liberate them and actually paying for his school fees. Isn't that funny? Some would call it the irony of faith, uh, of fate. It's not the irony of fate, it's the sovereignty of God, isn't it? God is in control of the circumstances of our lives. And so in the sovereignty of God, Moses is nurtured by his own mother at Pharaoh's expense. And he's given the best education the world could offer, but without losing his identity as one of God's covenant people. This is the environment in which Moses was reared. Faith, not fear. And can't you see how, how resourceful faith is? It's not, faith is not some vague kind of uh, religious instinct. It's... it's it's resourceful, it's intelligent, it's, it's adventurous, it's, it's realistic. Moses' parents, they, they thought this through, didn't they? Trusting in God's covenant promise. They were radically committed to the blessing of God on their child. The NIV says they saw that he was no ordinary child. Perhaps they had some instinct that this child... Well, they were believers. Perhaps they had this this assurance that this child was the one that they'd been waiting for. Right from the very beginning in Genesis, the, the one that had been promised, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would turn the tables on evil, the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to the whole world. They saw that this child was no ordinary... Perhaps, perhaps he's the deliverer. Perhaps he's the liberator. Perhaps he's the redeemer. So that's the first thing that we need to see about Moses. He was born. <laughs> yeah. you know, all the other thing, by faith things are things that we do. But here, <laughs> this is something that was done for him or done to him. He was born. None of us asked to be born. <laughs> but he was born to believing parents. And he was brought up in faith, not fear. But then God has no grandchildren. And, and there comes a day when, when Moses has to decide for himself. Let's call it D-Day, shall we? 
That's the second punctuation point in Moses' life, when he has to choose for himself what he believes and, and where he belongs. Uh, such a day comes to all of us sooner or later. Uh, maybe you've grown up in a, in, a, in a Christian home, and you can't remember a day when you didn't believe. It's often like that when you're brought up in a Christian home. But then, then a crisis comes. Uh, you leave home. You go to uni, perhaps. Uh, you start a new job. And you, suddenly you find yourself having to think this through for yourself. You have to make a choice now, like Moses does in these verses. You just can't avoid it. Am I only, am I only a Christian because my parents were Christians? I think lots of teenagers face that sort of uh, crisis in their lives. Am I a Christian because my parents are Christians, or, or do I believe this for myself? It's D-Day. You have to decide. You, you can't just limp along through life. Remember that, that wonderful uh, dramatic incident in, in Kings where Elijah stands up to the prophets of Baal? And, and he, he preaches to the, the, the Israelites who've been compromised in their faith, and they've listened to Ahab and Jezebel, and they've, 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 they've worshipped idols. And, and, and Elijah stands up and he says, how long are you going to go on limping between two op opinions? Uh, sometimes we think, well, what he's saying is don't sit on the fence, but he's, not, he's much more sinister than that. They're not just sitting on the fence. They're not just compromised, these people. They're crippled. They're limping between two opinions. They're, they're, they're limping after Baal, but they can't go wholeheartedly after Baal. They can't run after Baal worship because of their heritage and their background. They know too much about God and his word and his covenant. But on the other hand, they can't wholeheartedly worship God. If God, if God is God, Worship him, Elijah says, but they can't do that because they're unregenerate. They're not born again. So they've got enough religion, you know, to make them uncomfortable in the world and not enough religion, not true religion, to make them comfortable amongst the people of God. And I think a lot of our kids grow up like that, don't they? And they, they reach that sort of situation where they've got to decide whether to limp along through life they can't run after all the things that their non-Christian friends run after because uh, their Christian upbringing has spoiled that for them. <laughs> and so they're unhappy in the world. At uni, they're unhappy. They can't make those choices that their non-Christian friends are making. They're, they're uncomfortable. Their conscience troubles them. But on the other hand, when they come to church, they're not sure whether they really believe what their parents taught them. And, and so, uh, the, the, do you see what I'm saying? They're limping. And, and, and that often happens, people come to that position where they have to decide for themselves. Will I live for the, what the world has to offer me, or will I live, or will I choose Christ and his people? Now, that's the choice that confronted Moses here. Uh, when he had grown up, it says there in verse 24, when he was aged 40, <laughs> when, he, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, that's a monumental decision with costly consequences. See, if you're one of Pharaoh's grandsons, all doors are open to you. <laughs> you can have whatever you want. You're surrounded by sycophants who hang on your every word and laugh at all your jokes. 
That's heady stuff. And, and Moses lived in that kind of world. Moses lived at the pinnacle of worldly power and pleasure and riches. And he gave it all up to throw in his lot with the people of God. See what it says? He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Isn't that interesting that the author to the Hebrews calls it the reproach of Christ? How can he say that? Well, because these were the people of God. These were the people of God. And Christ suffers with his people. When they suffer, he suffers. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Sorry, I'm just, <laughs> an email just came in. <laughs> no, no doubt, um, the voices in his head were telling him, stay where you are. Just, just think about it, he's, he's facing this, this choice. And no, no doubt, as he thinks it through, the voices in his head are saying, well, you know, Stay where you are. Providence has placed you there. You're in a position of great influence. After all, uh, there's a precedent for this, isn't it? Think of Joseph. Uh, and the good that he did as a prince in Egypt. Couldn't you do the same thing? Why don't you stay where you are? Keep a low profile. Bide your time. Use your influence to improve the conditions of your people. Well... That was a hundred years ago. Things have moved on since Joseph's day. Israel is no longer uh, a guest in Egypt. Now they're slaves facing extermination. And, and here's Moses, he's walking the corridors of power. He's part of the ruling elite. And he's complicit in the mistreatment of the Jews just by that fact. And it's obviously troubling his conscience. There's a very uh, beautiful biography by a, a lady called Maya Angelou, a talented black woman from the deep south of the USA. She tells, she tells what it was like growing up <clears throat> as a black person in America. She calls her, her story, <clears throat> I, know, <clears throat> me, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Uh, and, and just one sentence in that book captures the, uh, the tragedy of it all. She says, if, if growing up is painful for the southern black girl, being aware of her displacement is the rust on the razor that threatens the throat. The rust on the razor that threatens the throat. That's how it was for the Jews in Egypt. And one day, crunch time came for Moses when he witnessed one of his own people being abused by an Egyptian. Uh, and he could no longer distance himself from what was happening. He had to do something about it. Uh, he, he wanted no part in this regime, regime that was holding a rusty razor to the throats of his people, and so he intervened. And he killed the Egyptian, burying his body in the sand. Stephen, in his speech in Acts chapter 7, says he supposed that, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. He, he probably expected that the people would, would, would recognize that he was going to be their liberator, their deliverer, their leader. 
He thought they would recognize him as their champion, but you know the story, they didn't, did they? The very next day, as Moses found out when he tried to break up a fight between two of them, he's given the cold shoulder. They, they threaten to betray him to the authorities. And, and he has to run with his tail between his legs. He has to run out of Egypt for fear of his life. See, these are the people of God. <laughs> these are the people he chooses to identify with and suffer alongside. Why would you do that? You know, bickering amongst themselves, fighting one another, beating one another up, ungrateful, unwelcoming. The people of God. God, you know, we're such a mixed bunch, aren't we? I, I like what um, Chuck Colson says. Oh, I don't really like it, but uh, I think it's a great quote. He says, the church is like Noah's Ark. The stink on the inside would be unbearable if it were not for the storm on the outside. <laughs> you know, there's, sometimes there's not a lot to distinguish us between, uh, between us and, and, the, and the people around us. Sometimes they behave better than we do in the church, don't they? I, 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 from time to time, I've come across people who said to me, yeah, look, yeah, Jesus, yes, but church, no. Don't talk to me about church. Church has got such a bad reputation, hasn't it? Why would you want to throw your lot in with the people of God when the world is your oyster? <laughs> because, well, do you see what it says? Because it says he was looking ahead to the reward. He believed that the future belongs to God's people. Do you believe that? He knew that this people, this downtrodden people, these people were not going to be exterminated in Egypt despite official state policy. How did he know that? By faith. By faith in the promise of God to Abraham to make of them a great nation and through them to bring blessing to the whole world. See, people sometimes assume that the church has no future. You'll often hear people say that, don't you? They've written it off already. You know, if you bother to watch the news, the, the, the morning programs. You know, um, while Mark Twain was traveling in Europe, his obituary appeared in an American newspaper. <laughs> Immediately, he sent a cable home saying, the report of my death is greatly exaggerated. <laughs> There's no shortage of people willing to write the church's obituary. You hear it every day, don't you? Christianity is dying out. The church has no future. Future, But a better question, you know, it might be, not does the church have a future? That's not the question. The question is, does the future have a church? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. Moses believed that the future belongs to the people of God. Better to suffer and to die with them in slavery and, and live forever in God's kingdom than die in Egypt and be buried under a pyramid. <laughs> He calculated that there were greater riches in going God's way than in all the material benefits that Pharaoh had to offer. It's a no-brainer as far as Moses is concerned. See, like Paul in the New Testament, he could say, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Remember Jim Elliot's famous words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And, and this, my friends, is the choice that, that faces every one of us sooner or later. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the process loses his, his own soul? 
loses himself. You don't lose your soul like you lose, lose your car keys. It's a process. It's as you gain the world that you lose yourself, Jesus said. So calculate it. Weigh it up. Work it out like Moses. He knew how to do his sums. He knew that what the world thinks is valuable is nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and being found in him. Yes, of course, there's pleasure in sin. But it's only for a season. At God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Yes, there's, there's treasure in Egypt, but it's in Egypt. <laughs> and you, you can't take it with you. There are no pockets in shrouds. Do you see how faith works? It, it reasons, it weighs things up. It takes the long-term view. It looks at things in the light of eternity. So let me ask you, has D-Day arrived for you? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Come what may. Do you prize Christ more than life's glittering prizes? Do you want to be faithful to him more than you want to keep your job or fulfill your ambitions or realize your dreams? C.T. Studd was a brilliant all-around cricketer. He played in that famous match at the Oval uh, at the end of the 19th century when the, the term the Ashes was coined, when Australia beat England in the last match in the series. Uh, he and his two brothers, C.T. Studd and his two brothers, and four of their friends scandalized society in the late 19th century by giving away their entire fortune and burying themselves in pioneer missionary work in China. In, in, in one day, C.T. Studd gave away 25,000 pounds sterling. That's millions of dollars in today's money. He, he turned his back on fame and fortune to go to China. There are millions of Christians in China today. Billions. Before he went, he said this in a public meeting in London. How could I spend the hours of my life in working for myself and for the honors and pleasures of this world? when every day thousands and thousands of souls are perishing without ever having heard of Jesus, going down to Christless and hopeless graves. He could have made the choice and just uh, got his picture on the wall there at Lord's and gone down in cricketing history. But he chose to identify himself with the people of God to throw in his lot with God's people and to follow Jesus. But the greatest day in Moses' life is yet to come, the day that he's best known for, the day that he faced down Pharaoh. Look at verse 27. This is the, the third point. See what it says? By faith he left Egypt. Now, uh, Moses left Egypt on two occasions, privately when he was 40 years old, as we've just seen, with his tail between his legs, out of fear, and publicly, 40 years later, very publicly, when he led the people out in the Exodus. Now, clearly, this is the Exodus that's in view here, because you notice what it says? This time he left by faith, not in fear. By faith he left Egypt, not, not fearing the king's anger. Forty years previously, he was forced to flee for his life. He rather fancied himself as the liberator of, of Israel, and he'd taken things into his own hands with disastrous consequences, so he had to leave town in a hurry. 
He thought that he was ready to lead, but he wasn't. He needed to be humbled. And for another 40 years, he stuck out in the desert tending sheep until one day the invisible God appeared to him in the burning bush and orders him to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That's one of the greatest speeches of all time, isn't it? That puts Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela into the shade. Everybody knows these words. Go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. That's even better than Ronald Reagan, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, <laughs> bring down this wall. Let my people go. But what are the chances of that happening? An old shepherd in his 80s, <laughs> from the back of beyond with a speech impediment, at what chance does he have of persuading Pharaoh to give up such a valuable source of cheap labor? And incidentally, shepherds were socially unacceptable to the Egyptians. What are the chances of him even getting an interview with Pharaoh? And, and if they run a security check on him, well, he's in trouble. He's got a criminal record. This uh, dodgy old shepherd was once an angry young man. <laughs> and there's a price on his head. See, what God is asking Moses to do is not only difficult, it's dangerous, isn't it? It's virtually impossible. He doesn't even have the backing of a trades union. He hasn't got the support of the people that he's supposed to be representing. If you've ever been out of your depth, if you've ever been given a job that's too big for you, then you'll know how Moses felt. And yet by faith, he does it. He pulls it off. By faith, it says, seeing him who is invisible. That's the, the nature of faith is it makes the invisible visible, doesn't it? The invisible God was more real to Moses than the very visible Pharaoh. <laughs> Can you imagine him, this old shepherds standing there in Pharaoh's court with all the trappings of Egypt? How intimidating that must have been. Here he is on the world stage and he's, he sees him who is invisible. He's playing to an audience of one. I, the, remember what the psalmist says? He, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That's Moses standing there in front of Pharaoh. That's Elijah before Ahab and Jezebel. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. He's not intimidated by, by Ahab and Jezebel. Moses is not intimidated by Pharaoh because by faith he sees him who is invisible and the invisible smile of God matters more to him than the very visible frowns of a tyrant like Pharaoh. That's faith. That's how it operates. Pharaoh was furious, of course, as you can imagine. There's nothing scarier than the tantrums of a tyrant. Nothing more frightening than the fury of a Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not going to let these people go without a struggle. The forsaking of Egypt takes up nine long chapters in the book of Exodus and ten plagues before he, he lets them go. And even then he chases after them into the Red Sea. But you see what it says? Moses persevered, not fearing the king's anger. And by faith he left Egypt, he and God's people with him, all who were trusting in the blood of the Passover lamb. It's quite a moment in the history of the world, isn't it? 
Pharaoh's entire free labor force taken away from him. Hundreds of thousands of Israelites broken by years of slavery, a bedraggled, downtrodden bunch of people defying Pharaoh's armies and his chariots and his horses. Someone ought to make a movie of it. Because I think Charlton Heston has, doesn't he? <laughs> by faith, he left Egypt. As someone has said, by faith, Moses chose the imperishable, he saw the invisible, and he did the impossible. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. By faith, he kept the Passover and, sprinkling, and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So what have we seen? Moses had godly parents who nurtured faith in him. As a grown-up, Moses made a great refusal which confirmed him in his faith. And ultimately, he left a great legacy. By placing his faith in God's promise, he enabled a whole people to be saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we think of these, ep this episode in the history of your people, we see someone, we see someone foreshadowed. We see a greater than Moses. We see the one who left a much greater palace than Pharaoh's. Someone for whom it was not robbery to be called, to, be, to, to claim to be equal with God. Someone who came to his own and his own received him not. Someone who was despised and rejected by men. Someone who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Someone who made himself nothing, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. And so we want to thank you, Lord, for Jesus and for the exodus that he accomplished at the cross to defeat Satan and to set his people free from slavery to sin and death. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. Amen.